6th Avenue podcast. My name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer, and I am 6th Avenue's very own final girl. And today, as always, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be talking to you about a movie that, um, until previously, I had only seen once. And I really think this movie is super interesting. Um for a lot of reasons, but today we're going to be talking about the 2007 Funny Games, um, written and directed by Michael Haneke, starring Naomi Watts, Tim Roth, um, Michael Pitt, Brady Corbett, Boyd Gaines, Devin Gearhart. Really good cast for this movie. Um, the funny thing about, the ironic thing about Funny Games is that, um, and we'll get into this as we discuss more into the film, obviously, but the whole thing is not funny at all. There's absolutely nothing funny about this movie at all. Um, so I think it's kind of fun and nice to have that little play on words there. But if you're wondering, yes, there are two um, versions of Funny Games. So the first one was released in 1997. It was also written and directed by Michael Haneke, so it's funny to me that he decided to... I'm going to have to find another word other than funny. It is cool to me that Michael Haneke decided to make two versions of the same movie. Um, The 2007 remake that we're talking about today is meticulously remade, specifically for a U.S. audience. The original 1997 version was um, in German, and Michael Haneke talked to um, Chris Cohen at a Cannes Film Festival many years ago, and was basically just saying, like, look, the first version, the intended audience for the first version of this, the 1997 version, was the American audience. So... I wanted to remake it because I wanted it to be in English and broadcasted to the American audience. Um, Something that Americans, I don't know if this is unique to Americans, but I want to assume that it is just from like anecdotal evidence that I have of people that I speak with. Americans don't love um, movies in other languages, which I think if you don't, even want to entertain the idea of film in other languages, then you miss out on obviously like a ton of, of wonderful, um, art and, and wonderful films that have been released all over the world. Um, I don't know who needs to hear this, but the brightest minds are not always in the United States. They're not always American. So I'm going to let that sink in for you all. Um, but yes, so this is a remake. But it's pretty much play-by-play the original film, just geared toward the American audience in English. Of course, we got to go to our Bible, IMDb. This movie is rated R. It is one hour and 51 minutes. It is a rather lengthy film, but that's okay. Some of the best movies are. Two psychopathic young men take a family hostage in their cabin. 
Now you're wondering what's funny about that. And like I already said, there is absolutely nothing fucking funny about this whole movie, but let's just, uh, let's jump in, shall we? I think this is a good time to get started. Um, for those of you that haven't seen this movie, I don't know that Michael Haneke is one of those directors that I don't know that I can recommend people watch his movies. Like having somebody recommend his films to me would make me think, wow, what is wrong with me that you think that I would enjoy movies like his? Um, for example, a movie that I'm probably not going to do an episode on, but might, because it did absolutely terrify me, even though it's not a horror movie. It's not even a thriller. It's it's a drama, but it's not a drama in the way that Mother is a drama. It's a drama in the way that it is genuinely very sad. But the way that Michael Haneke pretty much doesn't use any blocking at all um, in with his actors is it allows the audience to see literally everything that's going on. And sometimes you just want to pray for the camera to cut. You want, you just want an excuse to look away. You don't want to be caught watching some of his movies. I would say like, um, the Piano Teacher is the film I'm referencing. And in The Piano Teacher, there is a very lengthy rape scene. It is sad. It made me cry. It made me nauseous. I couldn't really sleep the night after I, I watched it. Um, and you see the whole thing. His camera work, he doesn't shy away from what he wants to show the audience. And that is sometimes really hard, I think, for an American audience. Um, a lot of our films are not really made that way. Sometimes, like in older horror and thriller and slasher movies, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for example, we don't actually see anything really happening, right? Like they use blocking of actors and, and shadows and lighting in such a way that you miss a lot of the true action that's occurring. And sometimes people think that that's more scary because you kind of let your mind wander, um, with what could potentially be going on. I am of the opinion that that only for me, for me, just as me personally, that only works with reading. If I'm reading something, my mind is running nuts. Okay. Like there's no, no way that I can visually conceptualize what I'm reading other than to the most extreme level. In film though, you still kind of understand what's happening. Like using Texas Chainsaw as another example. We see one of the women in the film get hung up on meat hooks, right? But we don't actually see that as the audience. So we kind of have to just use our imagination to imagine what that looked like and felt like. It's not like in Saw 7 where, you know, they have the meat hooks all over their body and they have to rip them out. So Michael Haneke, again, not something that I can really recommend. His movies are not really something I can recommend, but that does make them all the more important. They're important films. 
Um, piano teacher, both versions of funny games. Um, Benny's video, which I think I actually might do an episode on that one. All very disturbing, all very much targeted to convey a specific message. So with all of that preface being given, let's dive into 2007 remake of Funny Games. We get the credits at the beginning, which of course, as you know, I, I don't dislike at all. I like having credits at the beginning. Um, I like a good opening sequence with the credits. Love that. George, Anne, so they're a married couple, George and Anne. They have a son named Georgie and they have a dog named Lucky. And for the first couple minutes, they're just in the car having this, you know, cute little idyllic family road trip type situation, which as we know, nothing good happens when people go to um, a place that they don't normally live, right? Um, and in some movies, some things that are bad happen in the places that you do primarily live. Um, but anyway, they're on their way to their lake house. And as soon as they get there, they put the groceries away, um, you know, unload the car, all those fun things. And they have a nice gate in front of their house, which is nice. It provides like that little sense of security that you'd be looking for, particularly in a film like this, but you're not going to get it. So they have a beautiful lake home and pretty much immediately upon their arrival, their next door neighbor, Fred, comes over with um, Paul. And they shake hands, you know, talk to uh, George and just kind of make pleasantries, but Fred is being super weird. And inevitably, they, they came over with the fact of A, making the introduction and B, putting a boat their boat into the lake. So Georgie comments on how Uncle Fred is behaving really weird. Like, why is he acting so strange? And has tasked Georgie with helping him put the boat in the water and getting it all set up and all those fun things. So that's great. Later, while they're outside kind of doing that, um, Anne is on the phone in the kitchen. She's cooking and she's talking to somebody about how, like, what they're having for dinner for the week. She's like, we're having steak. We have enough steak to eat for the entire week. Um, my son needs me. Call me back later, basically. So Georgie comes in the house and he's, like, really concerned. And he's like, hey, mom, there's somebody here. And she's like, okay, where? Georgie's like, um, at the door? Like, <laughs> Can, are you going to come help me? Um, so Peter comes over and he's like, hey, sorry to bother you. I'm staying next door. And at first, all we get is Peter's face through a like a screen door. But the screen door is super white. So even the screen is white. So we can't really see his face at first. But then when we see him, we recognize him, of course. And he kind of can't get his story straight. And he's like, you know, I'm staying next door. Mrs. Thompson, I'm staying with her and she's baking something and she needs to borrow some eggs. Um, he asks for four eggs and Anne is kind of taken aback and she's like, what is she cooking that? What is Mrs. Thompson cooking next door that she needs four eggs for? Like that's, but of course, Peter has no idea what the eggs are for because he didn't really come over to get eggs. 
Um, as he walks towards the door and he's leaving, Anne is kind of like, oh yeah, like what have you been doing all day? And Peter's like, well, I was down by the water. And she's like, really? Cause you're not wet. So that's okay. Interesting. Um, but no worries tomorrow. Um, tell Mrs. Thompson that we're really excited to watch the game and you know, I guess they're going to hang out and have a watch party, whatever. As Peter approaches the door, he is, he drops the eggs. He drops all of them. I'd be kind of pissed. Eggs are expensive. Um, you know, so that's kind of shitty. And he apologizes while Anne cleans up the eggs off the floor. And she's like, well, you can't cry over spilled milk. It's okay. You do what you can. You don't need to be more careful. Like, whatever. It's fine. None of us eat eggs for breakfast anyway. So we have plenty of eggs for however long. And Peter makes his way back into the kitchen with Anne. And he's just kind of like, I'm very clumsy. Um, again, very sorry. Like, he's trying to make small talk. He's very, very nervous. He tries to press her for more eggs and he's like, we well, have a curtain. So, um, can I please still have four eggs? I'll take them back. And she's like, well, that only leaves me with four eggs. And he's like, I know, but you said nobody eats them for breakfast anyway. And she's like, well, we have guests coming and they might want to eat eggs for breakfast. Like, I don't know. Um, so anyways, she gets the eggs back out and while she's trying to ha like find something to put the eggs in so he doesn't carry them loosely, he knocks her cell phone into the sink that is filled with water. So she's like, maybe you should just leave before you destroy everything else in my kitchen. Like, what the fuck are you still doing here? She finds another smaller egg carton that only holds like six eggs and puts the four eggs in there for him. He apologizes again. She's like, I'm also sorry because, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, as we know. And he's like, I'll tell Mrs. Thompson how nice you were. Thank you so much. Have a good day. She hears the door close. She's like, all right, finally he's gone. She turns on the radio. She takes out a cigarette to smoke it. She's frustrated, but she's kind of just like, wow, that was weird. I'm so glad that he's gone. About a minute passes. Everything's pretty quiet. And she comes back. She hears a dog barking. This dog is really poorly behaved, uh, by the way. So the dog is barking, what have you. Peter and Paul now are inside the house again. So it was just Peter. Now Peter and Paul are both inside the house. And the carton of eggs that she had just given, Peter is gone. And Peter's like, funny way to play with the dog. I, you know... Peter's scared of dogs, like, I mean, what else can we say, right? Um, then he tries to change the subject quickly to keep everybody confused and entertained. And he's like, wow, what a great set of golf clubs. We both love golf, like, this is awesome. And so, Paul, like, these people just won't leave her house. So Paul is like, hey, let's go outside and test one of these clubs. That's a great set of Callaways that you have. And Peter requests more eggs again, because the f additional four eggs that Anne gave him, he also dropped when Lucky the dog jumped on him. Back down at uh, the dock where they're putting the boat in the water and getting everything prepped, Georgie hears Lucky 
make like a wailing sound. Um, and he looks over and he's afraid, of course. And so George comes and gets off the boat. Um, he had a knife that he was using to cut rope, but of course, conveniently, he left that on the boat. And he comes up to investigate what the fuck is going on and comments, um, Paul and Peter are commenting about like, wow, these are a great set of clubs. These are like night and day. And we're still wondering um, what the fuck happened to the dog, right? Because it was crazy and now it doesn't bark at all or make any noise. So they come back inside to bring the club and Anne is just kind of like, I don't know what kind of game you guys are playing, but like, I don't want any part of this. Like, you guys should probably just go. And Paul is like, lady, I don't know why you're being so rude all of a sudden. Like, I you're being really unfriendly all of a sudden out of nowhere. I don't know what's going on. Just trying to be friendly basically. And Anne is like, okay, look, you got to get out of my house. I want you to leave. Please go. Like, I don't care what you're doing, what you're selling, what you're playing. Like, I don't know. I I just want you out. So Peter and Paul are like, okay, we'll be done. Um, then he says, oh, by the way, just give Peter four more eggs and we'll be on our way. And she's like, no, I already gave you eight eggs. I'm not giving you any more eggs. Get the fuck out of my house. This is getting uncomfortable. I don't care about Eve and Fred next door. Like this is over. So they don't leave. She forcefully tries to push him out the door when George arrives and he's like, have you seen the dog? Now it's at this point that we notice a little discrepancy because Paul has now started calling Peter Tom. So we don't know if that's his real name or what his fake name is. Like, we don't know. But we we do know is that these people are ill-intentioned and probably not, probably not here with the best, um, the best purpose. So Paul and Peter try to explain to George, like, we don't know what happened. Your wife is being crazy. Like, we just want some fucking eggs. Even Fred sent us over here to get them. Please just give us the eggs and we'll leave. So Anne is frustrated. She's like, I don't know why nobody fucking believes me. George takes the rest of the eggs out of the fridge and apologizes to the boys and is like, my wife, she's not feeling that well. Like, just, you know, ignore her. And um, could you please leave? Like, maybe later will be a better time. Um, But here are the eggs. Peter and Paul start to smart off to George and they're like, look, we just came for eggs, nothing weird's going on, and they give George some sass, basically, and George not having any part of that, so he slaps the shit out of them, and then I believe it's Peter who takes, yes, he slapped Paul in the face, Peter takes one of the golf clubs out of the golf bag by the door and breaks George's leg with it. And it's at this point that Peter and Paul are going to be taking this family hostage. Peter and Paul are refusing to leave still. And they're like, okay, look, like, let's play a game. We broke George's leg. Fine. Now, Anne and Georgie get a chair for George to sit in. Um, and Peter and Paul are just like, look, Call the cops, call the neighbors, call an ambulance, call whoever you want. Like, we're not going to stop you. 
George is like, hey, bitch, what the fuck are you waiting for? Um, can you please go get the phone and call? This is not okay. She admits to George that one of the boys had slipped her phone into the, the sink when it was full of water. So there's that. Then Paul is like, okay, look, that game's not fun anymore. Let's play a different game. I have a golf ball in my pocket. What do you think that I was using this golf ball for? And they're like, I don't know, to play golf, I guess. Like, I don't, what do you mean? So he's like, yeah, but I decided to test out the clubs a different way. So let's go outside and play a game. So as Anne explores the property grounds looking for the stupid dog, um, Peter is hanging out inside guarding the front door basically and is asking Georgie and or George to make him something to eat. And he's like, by the way, don't bring me back a knife. Like, don't bring a knife back and try to harm me. That's not going to end well for you. Outside, Paul is playing hot and cold while Anne walks around. And eventually, when she gets to their vehicle, he says, wow, you're piping hot. So she opens the trunk of the vehicle. The dead dog falls out. And what's really iconic about this scene is that while Peter is saying hot, cold, warm, colder, whatever, while they're searching for the dog, he looks directly into the camera and smiles. Almost like he's playing this game with us too. He's making direct acknowledgement that, you know, this is a fourth wall complete break. He's acknowledging the audience. While Anne is still outside with Paul, uh, the neighbors, of course, show up for a visit. So that's nice. Two, a different set of neighbors, and they're asking for help with their boat. And basically, the neighbors kind of are, they're nice, but like, they're just like, who are these two boys that you have that are like all dressed in white with white gloves and white shoes, and you look like you fucking think about playing golf, but you don't. Um, so <laughs> they're just kind of, you know, making small chat and, Anne basically passes off Peter and Paul as friends. Um, like, yeah, they're our company. We know them, whatever they're staying next door. Um, she makes up a lie for George about how he pulled a muscle in his back whenever he was masting the boat. And so he can't come down and eventually the neighbors leave. On their way out, when they're going across the lake to their house, um, Anne makes sure to throw out something like, hey, maybe I'll come by later. You know, she's clearly afraid that something might be happening to her and her family. So she makes it a point to like make a small plan, an informal plan with people so that they might be expecting her and wondering where she's at. Back inside the house, though, Things are about to turn, things are about to turn up. It's about to get ugly. Um, Peter and Paul rearrange the living room furniture. We get everybody into the family room and, um, you know, they move George because he can't walk because his leg is broken into uh, the couch. Okay, at this point, 
Everybody's in the living room. Family on one couch. Peter, Paul on the other couch. Paul basically wants everything to be polite. And he's like, can we please just all be nice to each other? Like, things are going to go a lot better if we're all nice and polite and cordial. So then he makes up this lie. He, George asks, look, why are you doing this? Can you at least just tell us why? Like, what do you want? And Paul just goes in about Peter to the point that he cries. He's like, his mom is a drug addict. His parents got divorced when he was really little. Um, like he is in an incestuous relationship with his mom, like all these terrible things. And then he comes out and he's like, actually, nope, he's a drug addict. So like, that's why he's acting all nervous. If that's a different version of the story that you want, like whatever story you're looking for, like, we're not going to give you the real answer. And he basically says, look, we rob and target rich families in their vacation homes to fuel our habit. Whether or not they're actual drug addicts, like we don't know. But what we do know is that they target a certain type of a family. So George is like, okay, look, like I get it. Isn't that enough? Like what I really, what do you want? I'll give it to you. And they say, look, give us 12 hours. We're going to be playing games for 12 hours. He looks directly into the camera. Paul does and says, there has to be some kind of bet. Who are you betting on? What do you think is going to happen? So Peter and Paul are like, all right, look, they're going to lose anyway. Whether they make it through the night or not, they're all going to die. So it doesn't really matter. They try to talk to them again. You want money? You can have it. George is like, whatever you want, just take it and leave. This isn't worth it. This is stupid. Um, You're just trying to scare us. And what about Fred and Eve? Don't you think they're going to come over here and see what's happening? Paul is like, oh yeah, I bet they're going to come over here and give us a really bad spanking. And he kind of pauses before he says, and thinks about the state that maybe Fred and Eve are in. Because at this point, we don't know who's dead and who's alive. So Paul and Peter strike up a deal with the family, the Farber family. And they're like, what would you like to do now? Maybe you could make us something to eat. Peter really is prying for this food. He's like, okay, look. Anne, why don't you make us something to eat? And so she gets up and um, Paul is is teasing Peter. And he's just like, look, like you're fat. If you stopped eating all the time, I'm sure, I'm certain that a woman with a physique and the looks of Anne, she's not that old. She's beautiful. Her body is toned. I'm sure that you would be a perfectly suitable partner for her if you weren't so fucking fat. So she stands up to kind of go towards the kitchen, but she doesn't end up leaving the living room because now they start to touch on and play with Georgie, her son. And she's like, is there just why? Like, why can't you just leave my son out of this? He's just a young boy. Um, But Peter and Paul insist that they have a really fun game that they want to play. 
and it's called Cat in the Bag. So they take a pillowcase off of a pillow in the living room, and they say, this is a family game. Everybody can play. So they hold down Georgie with this bag, this uh, pillowcase, excuse me, over his face, and they say, okay, we're going to hold this bag over your kid's face until you take off all your clothes. She doesn't want to. She really, really doesn't want to. Um, she doesn't want to be exploited in this way, especially not in front of her husband. And her husband is literally doing nothing. I mean, I get that he has a broken leg, but they did kind of, from what it looks like, make like a little makeshift like um, splint for his leg. So like, I'd be pretty fucking pissed if my husband like wasn't willing to fight for me at all. Um, but it takes Anne at this point so long to undress herself that her son nearly dies of suffocation in the meantime. Whenever she does finally take her clothes off, Georgie escapes. He runs because they take the bag off of his head, right? So he escapes. He runs out of the house. He goes over to the neighbor's house, to Fred's house, and sees that Fred and Eve have also been murdered. They're dead. Meanwhile, in the house still, Anne is having, they never gave her the opportunity to put all of her clothes back on, by the way. So it's just Naomi Watts and her bra and underwear, which I think we can all agree, like, isn't the worst thing to be looking at. I mean, she's obviously stunning, but how humiliating for her character, right? So they tape up her hands and legs so she can't run off. George had somehow made his way onto the floor and they pick him up, put him back on the couch. And Peter is like, look, I'm sorry I had to break your leg. It was your own fault. You didn't have to slap Paul. This whole thing could have been avoided. And, and I'm sorry that I had to beg you for some eggs that I didn't really need. It was really humiliating. So, um, and by the way, I have to take my SATs again in the fall and I'm going to go to college and study business. And you know, he's just like making conversation with these people which is so strange because they literally don't care. As soon as they're done taping her up, Paul leaves, okay, to go and um, try to find Georgie, which, I mean, he's going to find Georgie, right? Um, but in the living room, and jumps up and hobbles over to her husband to try to see if he can untie her hands and untape her hands and feet. So Peter goes back into the kitchen again with the fucking eggs, okay? Like the eggs are just breaking all the time. He brings back the eggs. He sees Anne standing up. He gets mad. He drops a carton of eggs on the, car on the carpet again. And before Paul had asked him not to ruin the carpet... But of course, Peter has done exactly that. And while he's cleaning up the broken eggs on the floor, Anne bends down next to him and is like, look, I'll just make up a lie about all the stuff that happened. Like, why do you keep, just don't do this. Like, this just isn't worth it. Like, we can just make up lies about everything that happened. We won't tell anybody. And Peter, in a weird and strange moment of empathy, is like, look, like, this is also really hard for me. This is hard for both of us. Stop humiliating yourself by begging. Let's just get this over with. Now, what's really unfortunate for Georgie right now is that Fred and Eve's house has um, motion-activated, like, floodlights. 
dead giveaway for Paul, right? So Georgie's sneaking around this house in the pitch black and trying to avoid Paul. But alas, Georgie simply cannot escape. Um, He finds a shotgun on the floor that was what we assume to be the weapon used to kill um, the neighbors, Fred and Eve. And Paul is like, dude, let me just put some music on for us. Okay. So he puts in a CD into the CD player, which he plays the exact song that Georgie and his parents were listening to in the car on their way up to the lake house. And he still has the gun. So Paul confronts him and says, cock it back. Let it ride. Kill me. He pulls the trigger. Nothing happens. Paul makes like a fake explosion sound to just reiterate how stupid everybody else is and just how smart he truly is. And back at the Farber house, um, Peter has gotten bored. And so he's turned on the TV, he's flipping through news channels, and eventually settles on watching a NASCAR race for a little while. While Anne and George stare at each other or stare at the floor and do nothing and are helpless and afraid of what's happened to their son. So right now they're just playing the waiting game, but that's okay because they won't be waiting for very long. Georgie comes running through the door, hugs his mom and Paul has brought back the rifle, the shotgun from next door. He has, um, two shotgun shells loaded that are ready to be put in one for him and one for, Peter and is like, I think it's time that we about get to win in our bet, don't you think? So they decide to play a game where they do eeny, meeny, miny, mo with the family members and whoever they land on is who they're going to shoot. They also, which is so sad, tease George about Georgie and Paul's like, oh my God, have you ever been hunting with your neighbor Fred next door? It's crazy you should recognize this rifle because it's his and your darling little boy just tried to kill me with it. So. Proud parenting moment. Like, he's just toying with these people and it's just horrible to watch. After having made fun of Peter for being so fat, now Paul has decided that he's hungry so he goes into the kitchen to make himself like a little sandwich type situation with stuff from the refrigerator and he hears a gunshot. He decides not to do anything about that and continues to make his sandwich. But back in the living room, the first image that we see as the audience is the TV with NASCAR still on and blood splattered just all over everything, TV included. Still looking at the TV, Peter and Paul have a sidebar discussion between the two of them and they decide, look, this family is spent. They're tired. Like, let's just leave. I'm tired too. And they, they leave. When we get a pan of the rest of the living room though, Georgie is, has been murdered. Georgie has been shot, his blood, he's laying in a pool of it on the floor. It's absolutely devastating. Anne is so desperate to try to have the will to survive. And, and she's obviously grief stricken over her son, but the first thing she does is turn the TV off. She doesn't want to listen to that shit anymore. And Anne is eventually able 
to free herself of like the taping. They taped her arm, her, excuse me, her hands together and her feet together. So she is able to eventually free herself of her taped up situation. She basically jumps her way into the kitchen to get a knife and somehow is able to cut the restraints um, off of her own self. And this, and this sequence right before she goes into the kitchen and while she's in it getting the knife is prime Michael Henecki, okay? We live in the struggles with these characters in this moment. Anne is, her legs are completely exhausted, right? And imagine if your feet were taped together and your hands were taped behind your back and you had no way of getting up or down off of the floor. So she's in a sitting position on the floor and has to find the strength to stand up. We never look away. We never ever pan from her struggle. While she's in the kitchen, we look at George as he lies fucking worthlessly and helplessly on the floor of the living room and just starts to cry. And, and as soon as Anne runs back in there, she embraces him. She shows him that she's been able to free herself and reiterates to him that we got to get the fuck out of here. You know, Peter and Paul, they might come back. We really got to go. George, do you think you can walk? And he's like, I mean, I'll try. I don't know what else I can promise you. And Anne basically says, I'll do everything I can to help you. I mean, we got to go. She uses all of her strength, and I do mean all of it, to try to get him just from one side of the living room to the other. And it's just, it's just not working. And I'm saying this whole time from the point that we see Georgie's body to now has probably been five minutes. I mean, we never ever pan away from the suffering that is taking place in this house. When they finally get to the front door, they realize that the door is locked and they don't know where the keys are and that if the boys locked the door, then they certainly locked the gate. So there's no way for them to get out of the house. Anne suggests that they take a window, they climb out through the window and um, George is just like, okay, listen, like I... I literally am so useless right now. It took so long for me to get even to the front door. There's absolutely no possible way that I am going to make it through the window. So I'm going to stay here and you need to go. He gives her very clear instructions and put on shoes, put on clothes. You're going to have to run. Be careful when you get to the street because Peter and Paul are probably going to be waiting for you. I'm going to hide in the cellar, get the pliers from the greenhouse and cut through the fence and just go. On her way out, though, she's like, let me double check that cell phone just one more time and see if it's still not working. So she's able to get a signal, but when she tries to dial for the police, it doesn't ring. So she takes the phone apart. She wipes it off with a towel, puts it back together. She asks George, hey, where the fuck is your phone at, by the way? His phone's in the car. They don't have keys, so they can't get that phone out of the car. Um... George is like, okay, quick suggestion, get a hairdryer. Let's try that. And of course, like he's still trying to use the phone. It's still not working. (sighs) She gets the hairdryer to try to dry out the phone. It's not working. 
George is like, just, you just go. I'm in a chair. Pull the chair with me in it from the entryway into the kitchen. I'm going to sit with the phone and I'm going to keep trying. And the whole entire time, again, we are not allowed to lose any time. The scene is so drawn out. I mean, Naomi Watts is literally taking the phone apart, putting it back together. And it's one of those like old indestructible, you know, when phones like were literally indestructible, Nokia flip phones. And it blows my mind that they can't get this to work. But she's leaving through the window and she's leaving George to fend for himself. And he begs for her forgiveness. And he, she can't really give it. I mean, she gives him a kiss. But what else can you really do? I mean, he didn't listen to her. He wasn't firm enough in protecting his family. He wasn't firm enough in asking these boys to leave. He feels responsible that all this happened. And this scene is so drawn out and so long. And again, this is probably another like five minute scene where the whole time we see her messing with the phone, her running back and forth to get the blow dryer. George is sitting there staring at her helplessly watching you just want to die with how much you can empathize with what these people are going through right now Anne is eventually able to find the pliers that are in the greenhouse she cuts her way out through the fence and makes it over to a neighbor's um gate and she's like ringing the bell she's calling for help the floodlights are not turning on she can't tell if anyone's home but she's screaming begging for somebody to help and poor george is still at home with the hair dryer in the kitchen trying to get the phone to work he tries to eat a baguette but his you know mouth is so dry that he can't chew it and so he gives up on that george is eventually able to get the phone to make the call to 911 but he can't tell whether or not anyone on the other line on the other end of the phone line can hear him and he can hear something through the speaker from the other end but he can't really he doesn't know what they're saying he says they killed my son i live at you know 55 neck lane this is my address this is my name xyz he tries again he's like look i just called oh and by the way now the phone is dying so ann has taken off on foot She's decided to run as far as her body can carry her. She's obviously exhausted, but she's just trying to get out and get help. That is until she looks on towards the end of the street and sees a car with two headlights beaming down and they obviously see her. There's nothing or no one else on this street. No other cars, nothing. So she hides behind a tree thinking that They're not going to be able to find her. This car drives away past her. And when she realizes, I guess, that it's not Peter and Paul, she runs after the the car, but it doesn't stop. Now she just looks like a crazy person in the middle of the street. She sets back off on her intended, originally intended path until another car starts coming. And she kind of gets lulled into this false sense of security and decides to wait it out. But back at the house, George has somehow found the strength that he never had before um, and is like up and moving around and he puts a blanket over his son's body. When the door opens and here comes Anne. Before George sees anybody through the door frame 
from the family room looking out, a golf ball rolls right into the center of the door frame. And he's like, these motherfuckers, they came back. I can't believe it. And Paul is like, oh, there's my ball. Good morning, George. We brought back Anne, so that's fun. Paul and Peter are playing the eeny, meeny, miny, mo game again on who they want to kill, and they load, you know, one bullet back into the shotgun. Paul decides it's not a fun game if uh, nobody can speak, and they had actually gagged Anne whenever they captured her in uh, the street. So they take the gag out of her mouth, you know, untie the rope that's around it, and they decide that they want to play another game. Well, luckily, Anne, good going, the knife that she used previously, she had brought into the living room, I suppose, and left it on the coffee table. So Paul says, Paul says, wow, like this is great. We have another weapon. This is so much, this is going to be so much more fun. Like this is just better for us. And he says, while he's cutting the rope that he's tied around Anne. We have to make this entertaining for our audience, don't we? Like, it isn't fun to watch silent people suffer. So now they've decided to play another game called The Loving Wife. So Anne now has the choice, because I suppose she won the Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo round, that she gets to pick who gets to get killed next. Her or George, and with what weapon? The gun or the knife? So she gets to make the rules, and Paul is just taunting her, saying, like, you know, this costs you nothing. You can show your husband how much of a pussy he is and how much you love him by choosing to take this yourself, or you can kill him. Peter stabs George to prove a point. We don't see that, though, as the audience. And Paul decides to give, I don't know, Anne, I guess, a challenge. And he's like, she's like, what do you want me to do? Just tell me. And he's like, well, is that really so hard? I want you to say a prayer. And if you can say a prayer with no mistakes, then God is clearly on your side and you get to control what happens next. And she's like, I don't, I don't know any prayers. So Paul and Peter go back and forth and they're like, okay, so Peter, do you know any prayers? Peter gives a prayer. It's a really short one. It's like two lines and, you know, Anne is trying to repeat it and blood loss, fatigue, everything, what she's been through. She like literally cannot wrap her mind around the fact that they're asking her to pray. They force her to get down on her hands and knees so that she can pray properly quote-unquote properly and to say the prayer like you fucking mean it so she's trying she's really giving it her all and once again paul is directly addressing the audience he looks into the camera and he's like look every we all want a good ending here right we you deserve a good ending this is for entertainment what do you think? You think the ending should be, you know, do you think we should finish now? Like, do you think I should just kill her and leave her here? But I don't really think that'd make a very good movie. So let's see what plays out. 
Like, it's just so unsettling to have the killers be addressing you as an audience member directly. She says it. You know, Paul is like, wow, that was great. So last game here. If you can say that prayer again backwards perfectly without any mistakes, then the offer still stands. You can pick who goes first and what that person gets killed with. The shotgun was on the coffee table. So Anne, having her hands mildly freed, like they're still tied now with rope, but she can still kind of use them, picks up that shotgun off the coffee table and blows Peter back. She kills him. Paul pissed, okay? He picks up that shotgun right out of her hands, hits her in the stomach with it to fight her off, and then picks up the TV remote and presses rewind. And you're thinking, oh my God, that was awesome because Peter's dead. But Paul decides how things get to end around here. So he rewinds and the scene literally starts over from the beginning with them giving her the prayer and telling her to say it backwards again. Like we start the whole scene over again. So Peter's still alive now. In this version of the story, she picks up the gun. Okay. She reaches for it. Paul says, you're not allowed to break the rules and you shouldn't have done that, Anne. But he's able to get the gun away from her. So he's like, look, I'm sorry. You failed. Paul picks up the gun, points it at George, kills George. Now it's daylight out. It's morning. Peter and Paul have taken Anne out to the boat. She's bound. She's gagged. Think they're going to try to make it look like a boating accident, right? When Tweedledee and Tweedledum are later commandeering this boat and sailing, um, because for whatever reason, they're both sophisticated enough to know how to do that. Anne is hanging out in the back. She finds the knife that at the beginning of the movie that George and Georgie were using for the rope. Um, and she tries to cut herself free. It doesn't work. They bring her up to the front of the boat while they're steering and sailing and just throw her right off the boat into the water. And, and that's it. And then they start talking about how they're hungry and that, you know, like the, she still had an hour left of their game basically, but whatever. Um, they, they, they don't care, I guess. They just wanted to get it over with. Eventually they get over to the Thompson's house and request some eggs. So they played this game once, they're gonna start all over and they're gonna play it with some other people now. And Paul glances over to us, the audience, via the camera and gives us a nice little smirk. And that is the end of Funny Games. So now on to everybody's favorite part where I think we should stop asking ourselves, what does it all mean? And maybe just start asking ourselves, what does Carolyn think? I think that's better. So just right out of the gate, I gotta say, everybody seems to think that Scream is like one of the most meta movies ever made. Because being meta 
is a meta mm, meta cinema is basically a stylistic choice that people make when they're making a movie to continue to remind the audience that they are watching a movie um so for example like it's also being really self-aware like taking scream for example because i've seen it a hundred thousand times they're constantly talking about the rules of the horror movie right while they are giving us a horror movie so it's incredibly self-aware and this movie is too and anybody who thinks that scream is like the best example of a meta movie in terms of horror or thriller is just they're they're wrong they've never seen this movie I would think that, to me, this is by far the most meta film I've ever seen, and I would like to think that there are other film scholars out there in the world that would agree with me. Most of the meta stylistic choices really is done via the dialogue, which is fine. Like, I have no issue with that. Like, at one point, Peter says to Anne, you forget the importance of entertainment. Like, Anne is asking them is asking Peter, why don't you just kill us like, and get it over with? Like, What's with the, the prolonging and the suffering and the dragging it out? And he's like, Anne, you forget the importance of entertainment. We're literally there watching this movie for entertainment. They're doing all of these things on the camera to entertain us, right? So it's incredibly aware. And before the scene in which Paul makes Anne say her prayers he forces her to he addresses the audience directly and asks us don't you want a real ending and in a way it makes sure that we're paying attention he asks us if we think enough is enough at this point but of course the answer would be no because we want to continue to watch the film so we don't think enough is enough we want a good ending for Anne, maybe she escapes, maybe she doesn't. But the longer we drag this out, the more opportunity we have to find out what happens to her. And a real ending, according to Peter and Paul, cannot be Peter's death via shotgun by Anne. So that's why he rewinds the movie that we're actually watching. So like he's continuing to reinforce to the audience that we are watching a movie and does so in a way that he can literally control what we see by rewinding it. So he does that in order to give us the ending that we deserve to have, which is the one where the Farber family dies, everybody dies. It's a punishment for our viewership and our willingness to stick along for this ride rather than a reward. And at its very core, this film is about how people, I'll say in the United States and around the world, view violent media. At our very cores, we are relatively desensitized to violence in media, whether that be art, books, um, you know, there's, there's genres of books called extreme horror, um, music even, there's many different types of extreme and violent music, movies, TV, everything. Like, we're always in search of this. And 
because we have grown so desensitized to things, the only way to keep our attention is by making things more and more extreme. Michael Haneke is making a mockery of us and is poking fun at the audience in nearly all of his films because he doesn't really ever truly show the violent acts while they're taking place. And what I mean by that is, um, for example, in the Saw movies, right? Let's take Saw 1. Dr. Gordon cuts his foot off. We watch him from start to finish with the saw sawing his foot off so he can he can leave the game and he can win. We are given that visual representation. Mr. Michael here doesn't really give us those things. Um, like, for example, in Funny Games, he only allows us to experience Georgie's death via sound. We can only hear that there was a shot fired from the shotgun while we watch Paul make himself a sandwich in the kitchen. It's not until after that sequence, right, where he's done and he we get the view of the living room TV with the blood splattered all over it. And Peter and Paul have a discussion about, like, why are you being so trigger happy? Why did you do this? Um, couldn't you wait just a little bit longer? Blah, blah, blah. Why don't you be careful? It's not until after that that we see Georgie's dead, lifeless, bleeding body in the corner of the living room. To give you another example, um, in Benny's video, again, same director, Benny murders a girl of similar age to him by luring her to come home with him while his parents are away. Um, he video records the murderous act and we, the audience, are watching the live feed from his camera on the TV in his room. So we're watching the murder happen through the camera that's filming the movie, and then through that camera in, in the movie in Benny's room and on the TV in Benny's bedroom. And it happens in the corner of the TV screen. So we really can't see it. Um, it's probably one of the more painful deaths, I would say, to watch in a movie, um, particularly because the way the girl screams, she doesn't die immediately, and um, it's very difficult to listen to her screaming. But... We're not really seeing the act being carried out from start to finish. We're never shown the murder itself. Um, also, same can be said for the piano teacher. And the piano teacher, again, same director. Um, there is a graphic... There is a rape scene, and it's pretty, it's pretty long. Um, but we're not shown the actual sexual act. We're only shown from basically bottom of the rib cage up of the victim and the perpetrator. And there's other stylistic choices there as well for that. Um, the director has said that he didn't want to show, he doesn't want to use um, scenes involving sex or rape or assault 
by or to um like show us something that is enticing he's showing it to us for it not to be pleasurable like if he his basically his opinion is if he has something sexually related in one of his movies and you found it to be provocative then it was done incorrectly so we're just we're only given about half of the information all the time even in um funny games when Anne is undressing we're never shown her naked body we're never shown naomi watts's naked body we only see in the entire sequence where she undresses herself bra underwear everything we're only shown her face and her collarbone up that's it we don't ever see anything else and to me this is different from what i discussed at the beginning so at the beginning of this episode i was talking about older films like texas chainsaw massacre or friday the 13th and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, guys, even if they wanted to, like, show every bit of the on-screen violence, they probably couldn't have anyway, because special effects technology probably... The special effects technology that they had access to for this film, because this was a low, low, low-budget movie, wouldn't have given us... It wouldn't be effective, and it still wouldn't hold up today. So it likely just wasn't worth it. Um, special effects are very expensive. And also, Michael's conscious choice to not allow his audience to see the violence on screen from start to finish and head on works to tease us in a way. Sickly, we want to see it. I love seeing Dr. Gordon cut his foot off Okay, in the bathroom with John Kramer on the floor. That's like the greatest, one of the greatest things ever, right? But Michael Haneke's not going to give us that. We're, we're kind of disappointed in a way sometimes with his movies that we're not even given the opportunity. And his films do involve a lot of violence. We're just not always shown it. Um, and, and the reason why I say this is different from my prior statements is because Michael's movies are not necessarily meant to scare. They're meant to make us think. So when I'm watching a slasher, I'm not thinking. I don't want to think about anything. I just want to watch people get killed in creative ways. It's fun. It's meant to be in, you know, it's meant to be taken in fun. Michael Haneke's movies are not meant to be taken in fun. They are meant to make you sit with yourself and almost like shame yourself. It, it, they're, we're meant to dig deep within ourselves to ask ourselves why we feel the need to view and why we are disappointed when the violence isn't outright shown to us. Peter and Paul are our teachers or guides you could say for this movie they ask the characters guiding questions in order to like inform them of what the audience might already know they are by far the most condescending villains in any movie ever um for example the dog lucky right the audience knows or we think that we know 
that the thud and the wailing we hear when Paul and Peter test out the golf club at the beginning of the movie. We think we know what that means. So Peter and Paul ask the family questions when they're all inside after they break George's leg about where the dog is, right? So he pulls a golf club, or excuse me, he pulls the golf ball out of his pocket and Peter's like, why do I still have this golf ball when I was testing the club? Well, it's because I never hit the ball. I used something else to test the golf clubs, which really only at this point, like leads and to the conclusion that the dog is dead. But they're asking these questions to not only inform the characters of what they're doing behind the scenes, but also to explicitly inform us of what they're doing. Um, In a way, it provides like that clear answer that audiences are always looking for when they're like, oh my God, what happened? What happened? They're kind of giving you that, right? They're, they're giving it to you a little bit. Um, of course, no Michael Haneke movie is ever going to have like a good, happy ending with a nice bow on the top. You're always going to be thinking about what happened after the movie finished. And in order to drive home the point, that we also are as as dumb or sick as we are for wanting to consume this violence. Peter and Paul not only treat the family condescendingly, but they speak to us the same way. So this illustrates Michael Haneke's intent to force the viewer to feel and be a voyeur within the film itself. They're constantly reminding you that this is a film they're dropping hints in their dialogue that this is for entertainment. You forget the value of entertainment. Don't you want this to be entertaining? Where's the entertainment in that? Um, the use of a still camera, a camera that never pans away, but forces the viewer to watch the scene in its entirety, coupled with the use of a wider lens camera to show the entire room. So like in funny games, when they're showing the um, entire living room and when they're showing the whole kitchen, it forces you as a viewer to commit these shameful feeling acts of pure voyeurism. You are just watching. You are almost complicit in what is happening to this family. What I do think is interesting um, that I want to point out is that the only times in this film in particular in which the camera is completely still and we're shown like the whole room is whenever Anne and George are grieving the death of their son together in the living room. And that whole sequence... I went back and I kind of counted, I believe it's about 10 minutes long that we are sitting there watching this family just completely unfold. And at that point, we're kind of given the opportunity to be bored. When Peter and Paul are there, they are our on-screen entertainment. And without them, nothing really happens on the screen. 
So the absence of them as stimuli in the movie kind of puts our minds and hearts at ease for a little while and allows us to reflect on what we just sat through, which is absolute torture, the torture of an entire family. And we just sat by idly and watched it. Um, It gives you some time to think about yourself and it gives you some time to think about how that made you feel. It also gives you some time to think about what might happen next. So these moments are intentionally placed in his films in order to give you the opportunity to think about it. Last kind of thing I want to touch on. By having Peter and Paul directly address the camera, okay, and thereby address the viewers of the film, the audience, we're, we're kind of put in position of rooting for them. And we're also kind of put in the position of being complicit in what happens next. They're directly involving us by asking us questions and by, you know, smirking at us. Whenever um, Paul is playing hot and cold with Anne when she's looking for the dog, it they're like bringing us into that and making us complicit in their actions, asking us what we want, what kind of ending we want. Who's going to win the bet? Are they going to make it through the night? Are they not going to make it through the night? They're providing commentary by kind of teasing us and poking fun at us with alluding to what's going to happen next. And this technique just really confirms our involvement in allowing the violence to occur, number one. But number two being okay with having knowledge that this occurred to this family. And we watched all of it. We watched all of it unfold from start to finish. And the whole time we did nothing about it except for continue to watch it. Why did we do that? It's intended to make you uncomfortable. Especially because you're cheering Peter and Paul on for carrying out these acts of torture. And Peter and Paul are ultimately just giving the audience what it wants. We want action. Peter and Paul are bringing the action. And for that reason, it makes us complicit with the acts that are being carried out. And, and for whatever sick, irrational reason, we enjoy that. We totally do. And I'm pretty sure there might be some philosophical text out there to explain maybe why... Um, I'm sure Aristotle or Plato or somebody has written about this. I I can only imagine. Um, When we're talking about the title (laughs) of this movie, um, as we've discussed, there's absolutely nothing funny about this movie. There was never anything funny about this movie. There never will be anything funny about this movie. They are torturing this family by using the word game like we're playing a game let's play a new game in order to um illustrate to us as the audience that it is fun it's a game it's so much fun you can watch us torture this family onto your tv and you can be on our team and you can root for us um and there's just so much irony right they're the games are not fun at all 
that they're playing. I don't want to play any of those ever. And it can even be evidenced by the part where there's many parts where you kind of feel like you might be, um, somebody made it out, right? Like, um, Georgie makes a break for it at one point and he he ends up in the neighbor's house, right? And you're like, oh my God, that's so great. Like, I feel so much better. That's a huge weight list lifted off my shoulders now that the kid's not going to die. Well, he does die. Um, there's really not much you can do about that as a viewer, but you're almost like happy. It's kind of fun watching him escape. It's also kind of fun watching Anne be in the middle of the street and have the you know first car go by that ends up not being Peter and Paul. And you're like, oh, thank God she's gonna make it out. Like this, this makes the movie so much better. And then the second car comes by and it is Peter and Paul and they bring her back home. So, you know, there's just, there's nothing funny. There's so much um, duality, I would say. Um, and again, a lot of that has to do with the meta cinematic aspects of this film. Finally, last talking point, I swear, is that Peter and Paul have absolutely no motives that is what makes them so frightening. As an audience, we love a backstory or we've been conditioned to love or want or need a backstory. Looking at Halloween, Michael. I think Michael could have been totally just fine of, you know, being a killer. Like I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that, but we had to come up with all this backstory. Well, he killed his sister as a kid, and then now he escaped from the mental hospital, and he has all these issues. And, you know, Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street, he has this whole backstory where he, like, burned down a school, or the parents of a town burned down a school with him in it because he was sexually abusing the children of the school. And now he's coming back to take his revenge. Like, all of these people have motives. Even Jason has a motive. Okay. Jason comes out of that water and starts killing people because somebody killed his mom. So like, we have been so conditioned to expect a motive. Making the movie easier for us to watch. Peter and Paul having absolutely no motive, I mean, makes everything so much worse. Paul and Peter like make jokes about how like, well, we could give you this backstory. Like, it's almost, it's almost like they're the people who made the movie to giving an interview. And they're like, well, we could give you this backstory about how Peter's a drug addict. And so, like, we do this to wealthy families because, you know, we want money for drugs. And um, if that version doesn't work for you, then we can talk about how Peter's parents got divorced when he was really little. And, like, there's been all this childhood trauma and blah, blah, blah. They're literally making fun of us for wanting to know those things. Because, again, that's not really that entertaining, is it? Like, I don't necessarily need a backstory. Hellraiser's a good example. Until you get to the other movies. But the first one... We have no idea what Pinhead was doing before he was the coolest person in hell. Like... I don't need to know what he was doing before that. 
he's just awesome. He's my favorite. I don't need to know anything else. But we want a reason as an audience, typically, as to why people do the things that they do. Michael is not giving us that information. Just like he's not showing us explicitly the violence that's take that's carried out and taking place. This is all made to criticize the viewer for expecting these things, for wanting these things, and for valuing these things. So with that, that wraps up my thoughts on Funny Games for now. If you made it this far, please know that I appreciate you so much. I, I truly like this movie. This is one of the movies that, again, I watched so many movies in college. Um, I was watching this movie downstairs in my living room. My now husband, but then boyfriend, came over. And he was like, what are we watching? And I was like, oh, I don't know. It's this movie called Funny Games. I've never seen it. Um, about, I don't know, 30 minutes in, he was like, Carolyn, there's nothing fucking funny about this movie. I don't want to watch this anymore. I had another roommate who was home at the time. She wanted to sit down and watch a little bit of it. She ended up leaving in the middle of the movie. These are the things that happened to me in my life. What does it say about me? Well, I don't know. If you're um, good at doing psych evaluations, maybe you want to do one on me just to find out what's going on, I'll let you. But just a reminder that The Final Girl on 6th Avenue is part of the incredibly morbidly beautiful network. You can find my podcast and many others like it, as well as insightful film reviews, um, coverage of film festivals, so much more. You can do all of that at morbidlybeautiful.com. With regard to this podcast, you can find it on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Pocket Casts. If you enjoy the show, it would mean the world to me if you left me a five-star review. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, or requests, you can email me at finalgirlon6 at gmail.com, or you can send me a message on Instagram at finalgirlon6. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sticking with me on this one. Again, I can in good conscience recommend this movie to anybody, but if you are like me, you will love this movie. So... Ciao, everyone. I will talk to you again in two weeks. Never forget that I am Sixth Avenue's very own.